if a human being can walk on a roof, we can put some plant life up there. Welcome back to the pod. This is episode 125, Ciento Ventisinco of the Sprinkler Nerd Show, where it is my job to speak with world-class water and landscape entrepreneurs from, you know, all walks of life to tease out some of their habits, discuss some of the technology, and try to find out any lessons that they've learned that, uh, you know, might be interesting so that we can have together more thoughtful conversations. And today is a great example of one of these awesome, thoughtful conversations about green roofs, green infrastructure, and as you'll hear from Roland, skyscaping. <laughs> so today I'm joined by Roland Triska. He is a green roof expert in New York City. And I first met Roland about five years ago when I was working at the Javits Center helping New York Green Roof Company retrofit their control system. And at some point, I will probably have someone from New York Green Roof Company on the show so that we can go in depth on that specific green roof. However, this week I was... It was either this week or last week. Recently, I was reconnected with Roland, and I said, you know what, Roland? I would love to start talking more about green infrastructure. Would you like to join me on the Sprinkler Nerd Show and just do kind of an impromptu conversation? So that's what Roland and I have for you today is a impromptu, relaxed, flexible conversation about green roofs. And I think that, well, you'll hear from me. I think we're going to see a lot more of this. And I think that the, the diversity of green infrastructure that we're going to see in cities and perhaps in uh, residential areas, it's just going to be, we're going to see a heck of a lot more of it. And that means we, we being irrigators and landscapers, will probably have a lot more opportunities that aren't just putting in five, six, seven zones of rotors and blasting turf grass in front of a home or commercial property. We're going to see more detailed areas, more small pockets, elevated terraces, and so on. So just wanted to kind of do this intro here a little bit uh, off the cuff and um, yeah, just kind of present to you a fun conversation with Roland Triska, 15-year green roof expert in New York City. Hope you enjoy it, and let's jump right into today's episode. If you are an irrigation professional, old or new, who designs, installs, or maintains high-end residential, commercial, or municipal properties, and you want to use technology to improve your business, to get a leg up on your competition, even if you're an old school irrigator from the days of hydraulic systems, this show is for you. Roland, hey man, thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome to the Sprinkler Nerd Show. It's an absolute pleasure to be joining you, truly. I'm really excited to chat with you for so many reasons. You know, Green Roof is something that I think a lot of our industry knows about, but some people know a lot about it. Some people know just a little about it. And I think that there's just, you know, sort of some misconceptions as it relates to water. You know, actually, with that said, why don't you just tell us maybe a little bit about your career in the green roof industry? Sure. Yeah. So I've been living in New York City for about 13 years now, a little over, actually, um, which is kind of scary. But yeah, I 
was always interested in plant life and then had the opportunity to move out here as a, a much younger person and realized that the niche that I maybe wanted to kind of move toward was was the the urban green space. I've always been interested in people's attachment to nature and when you're in New York City that's a that's a pretty paradoxical thing. Those little moments of interaction with nature become all the more relevant. Yeah, totally because you have, you know, the concrete jungle and then you have Central Park. So you have like these two polarizing areas, but then you're seeing more and more like little bits of green you know, spread out amongst the concrete jungle so that it isn't quite so polarizing. Like you're in the park or you're not versus maybe in the future, you're sort of always in the park a little bit. Yeah. I'd like to soften those edges long-term. <laughs> That's a know? good way to put it. Right. <laughs> um, just to kind of like set the stage a little bit for the listeners, Roland and I met probably six, six-ish years ago. That uh, sounds right. As spooky the, as that is. Yeah. 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 <laughs> At the uh, Javits Center, uh, which is the, the convention center in New York City, which is maintained by New York Green Roof Company, which I believe is your former employer. And what's really cool about that particular rooftop is that, you know, number one, it's one of the largest rooftops, you know, green roofs in the United States. But it's also just kind of like when you're up there, it's almost like being in Central Park because you forget that you're in the middle of the city, yet you're up in this amazing space. And what's so cool about New York, I think, is that you have these you know, contrasting moments where one part of the day you can be in the concrete jungle and then just a few moments later, it's like you've left, but you're still there. And when I hear about New York's plan to not necessarily mandate green roofs, although there are some laws that we might start talking about. It's just bringing more of that green space into New York and into that like super urban environment. And I didn't really have an appreciation for it until, you know, you and I met and I was up on the green roof at Javits Center, just jaw open. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember actually the first time we met and I brought you up, we climbed up a, a pretty substantial ladder and I, I remember seeing the cityscape through your eyes in that moment. Um, it's easy to become jaded. And uh, yeah, it's, it, th that is a really special place. Can you tell us a little bit about the different types of green roofs that you've had the opportunity to work on? Maybe we could talk in this in these terms. We could talk about like trends in in green roofing, mm -hmm. and yep. um, in my professional experience, there's been either meadow types or uh, sedum types. You know, extensive versus intensive, mm -hmm. and uh, most of your listeners probably won't be unfamiliar with those terms. Um, no, you should but, definitely let's remind them what that means or educate them what that means because that is definitely like. If you're in the know, you know, and if you're not, you don't know. So let's remind them. Okay, sure. I think in probably like the quickest way to put it is extensive would be thin soil profile, which typically means sedum application. Or um, if, say, a given building is not worried about 
uh, weight capacity, then we could maybe talk about in, intensive and we could build a meadow. We could put root. Uh, we could sorry. We could put trees on the roof. Um, if you're if you're not worried about load capacity, there's the sky's the limit. But every roof, some some way or another, has a load capacity, and so yeah, typically and extensive it, is. Do you think it depends on whether it's being a retrofitted rooftop versus a new construction build? <laughs> That that's an interesting one. I would say, you know, I mean, th- this gets into architecture even, but I would say in New York City, it's depending on if you're in Manhattan. In my experience, and this is just my experience, um, these these buildings are pretty robust uh, in the commercial sense. So maybe maybe this is actually a distinction in the commercial sense. These buildings are pretty robust, but a private uh, occupancy, you know, a, a residential building, that's when you kind of have to be. A little bit more careful uh, with load capacity in in my experience. Um, mm-hmm. But if I were also to generalize a little bit, if a human being can walk on a roof, we can put some plant life up there. Hmm, that's a really interesting way to put it. Never thought of it like that because, for the most part, I would think a human could walk on any roof, which isn't necessarily always true. Uh, but that's really interesting. Hmm. Yeah. For me, that, yeah, that that's exactly what I'm saying. Is every roof should have should have plant life on there. You so, know? does it matter if the roof does it have to be flat or could it be a sloped roof? No, pitched roofs are, are no problem at all. There, it's just different solutions um, to the to the same the same end. I'll be honest that in New York City, there's there's very few sloped roofs that mm-hmm. I've been called upon to you know cultivate plant life on. But uh, sloped roofs aren't necessarily a hindrance. It might be a consideration for what type of vegetation that you ultimately try to target. But mm-hmm. there are very few roofs that are, have, have a steep enough pitch that you couldn't cultivate some type of plant life on. Wow. So I want to, um, I did a little bit of research prior to our conversation and I did find some data that was from the Nature Conservancy that talked about just the sheer number of green roofs and square footage of green roofs that I wanted to share. You know, so just as a, for instance, the Javits Center, which is where uh, Roland and I first met, is 6.75 acres of green Mm -hmm. roof, which, you know, well, how big is an acre? It's 294,000 square feet. I was about to rattle that off. Yeah, I knew that. Uh, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Of, of green roof, which you say it's six, big. eight, okay, whatever, <laughs> but you say almost 300,000 square feet. And that becomes a really, really big number. Especially in Manhattan. Yeah. And then there are, this was, I think this data may have been relevant to like 2020. I can't recall. Uh, but there was like approximately 730 green roofs, which was about 60 acres. And um, seemed like a lot, right? Like 730 green roofs in New York seems like a lot of green roofs. Yet, what I found interesting is that that's only 1% of like available rooftop space. So as it stands, we're only in 1%. So if we got to 2%, that means we doubled the amount of green roof space in Manhattan just by going from 1% to 2%, yet it's still only 2% of all rooftop space. So as a sort of category in the landscape and urban green space, I, it's just fascinating how much opportunity there is 
to for this this sector to grow. Yet at the same time, we are growing plants, but I'd be curious to kind of talk to you about the differences between trying to grow and maintain plants on the roof versus grow and maintain plants at the ground level. Okay. Yeah. So opportunity is probably the most important word there. Um, you know, when I stand on any elevated terrace and look out over the cityscape, I, I think to myself, you know, the things we could do with all these roofs that I'm seeing. And so when, when you just to clarify, like, you know, or let's just, let's just call it green roofs for now. And we can even get in the weeds on that. Are you alluding to like the environmental benefits of one versus the other or just just in just in general, really, like, you know, the data that I found said only one percent of rooftops are currently, you know, covered, which is really not that many. Uh, And there are environmental benefits and we could talk about the intensive versus extensive. Uh, However, I also know that there is aesthetic appeal and sometimes they blend right? And sometimes they're one or the other. Sure. And they don't have to be mutually exclusive. But yeah, this is in, in, in my own mind, one of the th- distinctions that I make is um, I'll talk about like performance roofs versus uh, say, let's call it amenity roofs. And those things can be married. Um, okay. So what would you, what would you describe as a performance roof? That's a great way. That's a great word. Okay, so the Java Center would would be the perfect example of that, where it's 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 doing a job is maybe how I would how okay. I would think how would how would make that distinction. Sure, you can a human being can go up there and they they do tours, they do a great job of that. The Java Center Green Roof specifically has a job to do, just as much as it's pretty to look at from the surrounding. But yeah, performance green roof in my mind, and I I have love for both, but. I think for me on a good day, I would, I would prefer being on a performance green roof, which means it's beneficial to stormwater runoff, which is probably the greatest benefit in New York city. But for that specific building also in the insulated properties are really important. That, that, I think that was actually probably the main reason that it was installed. Don't quote me on that. But what, what I really, when my heart really sings is when I'm installing greenery or maintaining greenery, that is also like, helping the city and um the net amount of water that runs off of that building might not be any different than any other building but it takes it longer to do so Mm -hmm. and that relieves a lot of the burden on the sewer system i think it's something like a quarter inch of rain overwhelms the entire sewer system in new york and then sewage gets gets dumped into the river it's something like that um yeah, so so stormwater runoff retention and the insulative properties, and then also one of the things that I'm really passionate about is creating pollinator and and just wildlife habitat in general within the urban setting. And mm-hmm. you know, when you get seven acres in in the heart of Manhattan, that's it's it's an oasis for for a myriad of creatures, uh, including migratory birds. And, you know, that, that, that's super important. So it's a, it's a really amazing space. Um, and there's also, there, there's, there's micro environments all over the city. And so, yeah, when, when my heart really sings, I'm fostering habitat. You know, so it's really easy for us to sit here and talk about the, one of the largest green roofs in the United States, 
but then to break it down and make it seem like, well, what's the everyday green roof? And I, and I did this math looking at all the green roofs in New York mm-hmm. City on this big table that I found online that the average green roof is, is like 3,000 square feet or less. And if you're into going even to like, let's just say rooftop bars in Manhattan, most of them have like greenery. Whether we want to call it a green roof or it's just urban green space on a terrace, it still needs to be basically, or I'm I'm assuming it needs to be, you know, taken care of like a horticultural practice, right? A terrace that has all these planters with plants, whether it's intensive or extensive, it's just plants on terrace. There is a ton of it. And every time I'm up on these rooftop bar, I'm thinking, how does somebody get up here and, you know, maintain the greenery? What do they do with the cuttings? How do they go in the elevator? Like, how how does this all happen in the urban environment? It's just amazing. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what it's like to try to maintain these green spaces that are elevated. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Within the city, the, the logistics are just as uh just as much of the consideration as the the plant life plant life itself and you know for as much as i as i love plants um i i like to joke that i spent just as much time in elevators as i have (laughs) on the roof you know you got to get the stuff up there i do the same thing every time i see a plant on a roof or a terrace or whatever it's somebody had to get that there and now somebody has to maintain it and and yeah it's 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 a, it's a really wild endeavor <laughs> to totally. And, and I like, you know, if it's a really small, let's say it's a, a small terrace, you know, I'll see a little hose bib timer, you know, off a faucet with some micro drip emitters. And, you know, that's, that's great, right? Plants need water. And so if that's like the most basic, well, the most basic might be you go out there with a watering can and you water it. And then the sure. second most basic might be like off a hose bib all the way up to the Javits Center, which is multiple points of connection, larger main lines, a full on completely automated irrigation system. I would love to sort of hear how, what your experience has been like managing water on these vertical landscapes. Sure. Okay. So the first thing I'll say is that like, neither of us are interested in waste. At the same time, one of the luxuries we have in New York City, as opposed to say LA or something is, I don't worry too much about water use, to be perfectly frank. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I want to know how much water we're using. Maybe, maybe that's what I actually, maybe that's what I actually think about more. And and I'm lucky enough that my clientele really isn't worried about water use, frankly. But at the same time, uh, I'm fascinated by just in the in the horticultural sense in general. It's probably better to underwater than overwater. Right. I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah. Uh, likely. Yeah. Because the plants are, can sustain typically underwatering better than they can sustain overwater. Yeah. Yeah. And even in my own garden, I'm, I'm, I'm always like striving to create hardiness. Uh, how do we, how do we maintain plants with the supplementary water? In other words, do plants need extra water on rooftops or can you just let them deal with the environment and water them as needed? Or do we really need extra automated systems? Uh, yeah, I would say that in my professional experience, what I'm always striving toward, and you've helped me with this, is just achieving metrics. You know, it's not so much about like 
wasting water and nobody wants to waste anything. You know, we're, we're on the same page with that. And even, even as a reflection of my clientele, um, nobody's worried about how much water we're using, but personally that's, that's how I create watering schedules is better understanding how much water is being delivered to, to a given Mm -hmm. space, you know? Um, do I worry about the, the expense of water? No. And maybe I could get better about that. Well, and it's, it's, it's also, um, let's say it's nobody's fault other than number one, the technology is not always there. So if you are watering off of a hose bib on a terrace, it likely does not have a water meter directly on that hose bib yet that actually is available today, but it's not something most people think about because water is so inexpensive. They're not thinking this way yet. When we look into the future, what you just said is totally true. We should know how much we're using at any moment from any source so that you can know whether you're using more this June or than you used last June. But how would you even know unless you were metering the water? And many times, Water is metered when it goes into the building and then maybe a couple more points, but not all the way at the end of the line, meaning like at the hose bib, is it ever metered? And I think that if we did meter, and this is just from my own opinion, if we did meter the water at those points, it would give us more data, like you said, and insights in order to better manage the resource. Yes. And I couldn't agree with that more. In today's world, why would you not be gathering data about anything in this field? Right. I, that's that's kind of where like our our minds mm-hmm. converge, you know, and that's something I really appreciate about you. Um, and that's what we bonded over in the beginning. Yeah. You know? And sure, when I when I show up to install a given space, I, I have my pressure and flow meter. And to you, it would probably look very archaic, but it, it does the job. And we can talk <laughs> about that later, too. But um, yeah. but I think that professionally. For me, what I'm striving toward and what can, you know, hopefully set me apart and just advance the field is let's get some metrics on this stuff. If, if we're showing up and doing it anyway, let's let's measure it. I, I truly do feel that way. And, and especially in the area of Hudson Yards, um, you know, we've talked about a new site that I'm working on. Um, there, are, there are certain environments that nobody's ever done this stuff before and it's important and for me fun to let's gather as much real info as we can and so that's you know that's why i picked up the phone the other day and here we are talking you know yeah totally And, and in order to take action you have to have some insights that could turn into maybe actionable insights and mm-hmm. you know if you had the data and some insights then you could put your own sort of uh you could tell your own story about that outside, you know, utility or building um, infrastructure that's outside that maybe isn't being measured the same way that the interior buildings being measured. Yet, you could take that information, put it into some amazing, you know, reports. We'll call that a story that tells a story about that part of the building, but puts it in a way that the other, you know, maybe stakeholders would like to see so that month to month, year to year, day to day, however you want to try to measure it, you can see, are we improving? Is it costing us more? Are we saving? You know, but without measuring it, you don't have any idea how things are moving. I actually really like the way that you stated that. Um, Of course, it starts with just just measuring it, gallons per minute, whatever. But 
even in such a dry field as this, there's room for interpretation, you know, and that's where some of the magic of this industry mm-hmm. lies. We, we don't know each other really well, but I, I've always been very inspired by you. And I, I credit you for like, you understand the nuance that's, that's within the metrics. <laughs> There's certain things you can measure, but then there is the, the gray area in between, which is more of the art. So you can measure field capacity. You can measure the holding capacity of a soil. Okay, fine. It's really nerdy and it's scientific. Yet what you can't measure as well is how healthy is that plant meaning how dry can mm. this plant, you can take 10 plants that are the exact same plant and they, each of those 10 plants can take a different amount of um, different variants of drought based on the health of the plant, which you can't measure very well, but someone who knows like yourself about the plant and about its health and about its quality its root depth, all these things that that's the art. There's only certain things that you can measure. The rest is for, you know, experience and knowledge to take over. Yeah, you you said the magic word, art. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what kind of makes soil moisture sensing difficult is it's not just science. You can measure some things, like you can measure field capacity in a soil, but that's one data point all by itself. That's not relevant to really much of anything other than that's field capacity. <laughs> this is why I'm still in the field, you know, is is there there is still just so much room for nuance in this mm-hmm. field. It's endlessly fascinating. And, yeah. and, 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 and you know, it's no different than, um, let's just take this and say, we're talking about turf grass, right? So uh-huh. different varieties of turf grass, and I've just started to talk about this a little bit more, can you know withstand different periods of heat stress, drought stress, et cetera, that just having the moisture percentage, that's good to know, yet it doesn't actually tell the full story of why, you know, a plant is no longer green. Yes. That's, that's a good way to put it. Is it, it it doesn't necessarily tell the full story. I really like that of stating it. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So let's kind of come back. I know we're, we're uh, getting a little bit short on time, but I would love to hear what are the challenges to maintaining elevated green infrastructure? Um, Microclimates is the first thing that comes to mind. This corner of the building could be drastically different than the other corner of the building. I have, I'm constantly orienting myself. Am I, am I looking, you know, what cardinal direction am I looking in? Where's the prevailing wind? I'm sure you won't be surprised. I'm always looking at the forecast. Um, from a, from a horticultural sense, the challenges would probably be microclimates. But from a contractor sense, <laughs> you can imagine what it's like trying to con- just convey materials, you know. All, all those things. I mean, really, all those things, you know. So let's say it comes time for, let's say it's a um, uh, intensive and you're, you're needing to, you know, prune back uh, certain plants. Like, how do you actually get the material off the roof. So, I mean, on a good day, and I have implemented this on certain sites, on a good day, we pollinate, germinate, and then decompose. But in New York City, that's not always easy to do. I did implement a program doing that in uh, the Javits Center specifically, uh, a a composting program. Um, I can't take credit for, for the beehives and stuff there. But that was one of the things that I really fell in love with about that place is we were we were completing completing that loop. Um, mm-hmm. But even Hilton hotels are mm-hmm. are moving into that space. I think in general, when when you're 
when you're really doing it right, you're doing those three things, pollination, germination, and decomposition. Wow. It, it, it can't happen in every setting, but especially in an industrial setting, I think that uh, we have a duty to move in that direction. And that's something that that's something that I really want to focus on is it is closing feedback loops. Okay. That's that's I think when you're really doing it right, that's what you're doing. Yeah, I'm just kind of curious, like, you know, and we might just be a little bit future thinking here. If there are buildings that end up having lots of green infrastructure on the building that needs to be maintained and then, you know, clipped because you die back and then it regrows like we have all this infrastructure in a building for food, waste, water, sewage. Are we, are we going to be looking at like a mulching station on every floor where you can take green clippings, like put it in the mulcher and then it goes down a chute into like. <laughs> into Andy, my heart would sing. My heart would <laughs> sing if we could get to that point. You know, I'm just a contractor. And I think there's a conversation. These institutions need to think about some of this stuff. Um, I think that I think there's a really great opportunity within this city as a whole, or maybe even just in Hudson Yards as a whole, to like really take on the onus of let's pollinate, let's germinate, and let's 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 compost. And it, it doesn't really have to be a big deal. Because yeah, then, the compost then, could actually uh-huh. like benefit the residences too, and the the yeah, you know yeah. be part of it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's entirely conceivable to just generate your own, your own compost is, is the back end of the thing. It's like a net zero, I guess. Maybe that's the wrong word, it, but like well, nothing it, leaves the site-ish. If, yes, if I, like. Exactly. I, one of my rules is soil should never leave a garden. But okay. um, yeah, you're totally right that like as far as organic matter, I haven't been in any garden skyscraper, huge green roof that it couldn't reuptake its own byproduct is maybe one of the things that I'm, I don't know. And then that, that's just off, off the top of my head, but that, I think that's how I would state how I feel about that. Okay. You know, a place with a, a place with a big footprint might create a lot of bio byproduct. I don't know that. Yeah, I know. Like a lot of stuff that needs to leave the site instead of staying on the site. Mm-hmm. But the big, the bigger it the is, yeah, the, the bigger it is, the more it produces, but the more it can take. It only creates as much biomass as it could then compost and be reapplied. Right. You know, otherwise, eventually there'll be nothing left if. Yeah. Right, like, yeah. Maybe another way to put it is like what I'm hoping to work toward in general is closing feedback loops with with that three part cycle. Cool. Well, let's uh, maybe use that as a transition point to, I I do want to ask you about, and this could help, um, you know, a lot of the audience are irrigators uh, or landscapers that. Yeah, we got to talk about uh, water. Yeah, they work in irrigation. And so there are, you know, lots of different myths and misconceptions and drip or sprays or MP rotators or rotors. And I don't really want to talk about how to water, uh, but I do want to ask you if, you see like what you see out there from a real contractor's perspective on the mistakes that, um, that are made as it Mm. relates to watering roofs. That's an interesting one. I see honestly, and given the context of how I met you, I kind of hate to say this, but I see a lot of over-engineering 
is is my knee jerk. Okay. And granted, I see plenty of under engineering, and you know, I've by by now I've come up with my own uh, best practices and means and all that. Um, but I think there's a sweet spot that a lot of a lot of entities haven't quite found. And I think it also points to the fact that there should be more open conversation between corporations, buildings, contractors. I, I think there's one of the things I did want to touch on with you mm-hmm. is th- there's just a lot of conversation to be had yeah. about these types of things. And I mean, hence, here, here we are, you know, in, in Hudson Yards. I want to talk to the guy that's in charge of what I'm doing at, at the, the other building, you know. Mm-hmm. But so, yeah, I don't know. That That's a big question. I would kind of, what do, what do you think about that? Well, I, I think that um, I like what you just said about the conversation, because I think that's the most, the, the missing piece is that um, it's easy to want to take what we know and then just go apply it somewhere. So in other words, it's easy for an irrigation contractor to take what they know about irrigation and then just go apply it to the rooftop. And now they they think they're an irrigation expert uh, okay, on a rooftop, okay. and they might be an irrigation expert as it relates to proper head spacing, distribution, pressure, you know, flow, pipe sizing, all of these things. Yet that's just putting the infrastructure in place. And I think the conversation changes when we start talking about when to water, how long. <laughs> And most, I shouldn't say most, a lot of new construction contractors that install green roofs aren't always the ones that manage them. And if they are the ones that manage them, there's there's a completely different science with managing an irrigation system than there is installing, installing it. Installing it, yeah. <laughs> Two completely <Buddy>. different topics. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, that that's my life. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with that more. Yeah, yeah. I do, I do and a so lot I, of forensics. I guess that's my, yeah, like, yeah. yeah, and that's like, I guess my word of wisdom is like, it would be best to have a great, a highly efficient irrigation system on the roof. But if that's your expertise, then stay in that lane and, you know, talk to the likes of yourself who manage the green roof to understand what are the watering requirements. And one of my like aha moments years ago, and I think it was actually Chris Bruner at Near Green Roofs when I was talking to him about the watering requirements of the Javits Center, I was shocked when he said, and I, I could be wrong, but it was something like, we want to make sure it gets one amazing water application per month minimum. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wow, yeah. interesting. Like that totally changed the way that I thought because it also reminded me that certain plants can like can withstand and sustain no water. Yeah. That's partially the point. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So important to mention though, that this is an extensive sedum green. Correct. Right. Um, It's the desert green roof. It's not the flower, shrubs, bushes, trees. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But isn't that a beautiful thing? One deep soak a month. Right. You know, who, who could argue and, and with a that? Lot of, um, and that's not a even lot accounting of for rain. systems that are automated. The problem is because they're automated means somebody set up a schedule and that schedule runs Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or just Tuesday, Thursday, whatever it is. Whatever it, it just is, yeah. runs. And then people forget and they don't know and they don't see it. And then it just does its thing, even though the plants don't need it. 
Yeah, I mean, long term, you know, I I love New York and I have a good thing going here, but um, I, I'd be fascinated. I, I did listen to the pod that you did. Um, I, wish, I wish I could remember specifically, but you were talking to a guy that was in a, a very arid landscape. Um, Fauzi in Dubai. Dubai, Dubai. Could yeah, be. that was yeah. a great app, man. Point being, yeah, it, it depends on where you are. I don't feel bad about a little bit of water getting wasted here, honestly. You know, I think that if we think of it, let's say an automated irrigation system as infrastructure that's there, that doesn't necessarily have to be used. It can be almost like a, a fire suppression system. No mm. one ever uses mm. They hope to God they never use the fire suppression system. Yet it's there just in case there happens to be a fire. It can come on this in the same way, you know, just in case we have, you know, a drier than normal year and we need to apply some water. That's when this, you know, that's when we need to do our job. Yeah. Our job is not water every Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 9 a.m. for 30 minutes just yeah, because just, that's the way the clock goes. Yeah, just with blinders on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and to understand that the the watering requirements of a green roof are different depending on the type of green roof and significantly different than a landscape, you know, environment for a lot of reasons, but also because it's up at, you know, up in the sky where it's typically a lot windier and things dry out a lot yes, quicker. Yes. Right? That's, that's where the nuance comes in. Yeah. You know, when, when you're on the 66th floor, we're not landscaping anymore. We're, we're, we're skyscaping, you know? Right. Trademark, trademark. I might've just came up yeah. with that. <laughs> I don't know. But it, it's, it really is important to note that, these are extreme conditions that we're working in. And that, that's part of where my passion lies is, you know, where we're going, there are no roads type of thing. Right. You know? Mm -hmm. um, and that's part of what really drew me to you. I, I know you have such a, a curious mind and, and you're always working on this type of stuff. And, and to your credit, you're always looking for feedback on this type of stuff. So. Um, I think as we wrap up, it would be nice to know, it would be good to hear from you if you have any, you know, suggestions for either a contractor who's never worked on a rooftop okay. who might want to think, yeah, I should, I, maybe I should get into green roofs. You know, what kind of advice would you have for them? Okay. Um, call me first, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, say, say you found yourself landing a, a cool rooftop project. I think what I would do first, I mean, it, it depends on the plant palette. Well, how about this? First, figure out your load capacity. Don't just okay. throw don't just throw some shit on a roof. Uh, you know, I'm not the first guy to to ever realize any of this, but um, yeah, figure out your load capacity. Make sure your membrane is sound. Get somebody outside of your company to tell you that the membrane is sound. Mm. Figure out your drainage. I mean, now okay. you you brought out the installer in me now. You know. Mm -hmm. And then I would say, figure out what you want to do about water. Okay. And one of the, maybe it, this is getting really in the weeds, but one of the big lessons I learned from Chris Bunner, who you mentioned, is mm -hmm. to figure out or to get an idea of your watering regimen. Once you lay your capillary fabric down, which you absolutely, absolutely should do to protect the membrane, run your system and figure out how long it takes to soak the capillary fabric. Once you have, how do you know it's? How do you know it's been soaked? 
once it's dripping into the drains. Mm. Okay. That's probably the, mm. the, one of the greatest lessons I learned from him. Um, okay. And then that'll inform your, your watering regimen because everybody loves instant gratification, especially with the extensive sedum roofs. But sure, it's great to get it up there, but how do you water it once it's mm-hmm. up there? You know? Wow. Fantastic. Those are, that's a great, uh, you know, just final thought. How do you water it once it's up there? I love yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Roland. Thank you so much. Um, let's, if somebody listening wants to learn more about just, you know, you or reach out to you because they're interested in green roofs anywhere or in New York, you know, what's the best way for someone to reach you? I would say if you're interested in green roofs, just read, uh, Mr. And Mrs. Snodgrass are the Ooh. foremost authorities on that. And you can, you can find tons of great information from them. Yeah. I would just encourage cool. anyone is just get some greenery in your life in general. It's good for get you. Get a house plant. Totally. Yeah, I just need something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Something. Very cool. So. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for sharing and, and, uh, having a great conversation. Really appreciate it. Yeah. I, I, I'm very grateful. Thanks for having me and let's do it again. Keep up the good work. Appreciate Thanks so it. much, man. Thanks you too. All. all right. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.